Hello and welcome to Enough Said, the new podcast brought to you live and direct from Ithaca House by the registered charity Independent Newham Users Forum, otherwise known as INUF. Enough is a mental health support service for Newham-based residents who wish to take part in advocacy, advice and learning workshops, lifestyle choice events and other volunteer opportunities. If you'd like to know more about the charity, feel free to follow up our website www.inuf.org. Today's subject is going to be joined by uh, two clinical psychologists who work in local services in the London Borough of Newham. So please introduce yourselves. Hello, my name is Dr. Roberta Beck. And hi, my name is uh, Marta Sosnowska. And what is it that you particularly do, and um, which company do you work for? Well, um, we work as psychologists, and we help people, I suppose, work on any mental health difficulties. We help people think about their life, where they might want to go, their relationships, and other things like that, really. Uh, I guess also it's helpful to know a little bit about the context. So we work for uh, services that are uh, named as secondary, which means we provide specialist uh, talking therapies. And I think it is a very, I'm not, I don't have very in-depth knowledge of London services, but I think from what I know that it is very rarely that there is such a high range of approaches that you, that you can have. But I mean, really also what's important to think about, we are part of a wider system of mental health services, especially services. Mm-hmm. And in London, yeah, in the London Borough of Newham, so. Cool. And we are also joined by our regular hosts, Stephen Code. Hi. And Michael Ahan. Hi. So, um, this is a new um, uh, approach that we're going to do where we've got some experts in the office uh, for the podcast. And the subject we're going to talk about today is misconceptions behind mental illnesses and one of the mental illnesses that we'd like to explore or conditions as it were is depression now according to an article by uh, Healthline there are at least nine depression myths and it's not easy for people to get facts about depression, uh, particularly if you were going to search for it online or just ask your friends and mates. But depression is one of the leading causes of disease around the world. Uh, nonetheless, many myths and misconceptions also persist where people who experience depression often face prejudice due to the stigma attached to mental health disorders. So I was wondering if you could help me go through some of these like one by one um have you ever heard of any misconceptions yourselves about depression or mental illness that's open to anyone who wants to say anything i've heard that depression can be caught like it's contagious so if you know someone's got depression you can catch it too like a common cold so i think there's some uncertainty about actually what causes depression and although there may be a biological link in terms of people might have a vulnerability, mm. if there's family members who suffer from mm. the um, condition, it's not something you can catch like a cold or a veruca. 
Do you think that rumor or that myth creates a uh, stigma where people tend to stay away from people with depression? Definitely. I think mental health can be a very challenging topic to talk about and it's stigmatized mm. for a reason. So mm. I think people think about mental health leading to people being crazy. And mm. it's not, we all have mental health. Mm. I think it's a continued thing about mental unwellness yeah. and wellness. Okay. I mean, the experience that I'm having with understanding more about mental health is that language is changing mm -hmm. to make it more easy to talk about and for people to engage and empathize with others um have you noticed anything different about uh how to talk about mental health um i've, I've noticed that um more people are able to talk about it in an intelligent way than maybe 20 years ago or 25 years ago when i was first diagnosed with depression and did you feel contagious or other people felt that you were contagious when that oh, diagnosis a bit happened? Contagious, yeah, a little bit. I used to be quite a whiny little um, teenage depressive. And um, I used to kind of think I was driving people away just because I was always, you know, <laughs> I feel really depressed and they don't care. And they, well, they cared, but, you know, they don't want you to wanna, wanna, um, discuss it in any proper way. I think what you're saying about the word depressed is really interesting because I think we use the word depression and depressed mm. but actually it covers a whole range of symptoms and I think when people say I'm depressed it kind of shuts down the opportunity for people to be curious about mm. what they're feeling yeah. low about mm. and actually so many things can contribute to someone having a low mood Yeah, it makes it very difficult to talk about. Mm. I mean there is one interesting misconception that leads on to which is talking about it only makes things worse where discussing depression merely reinforces destructive feelings and keeping people focused on negative experiences in life I mean that can't be true can it no I think talking about it's important I think how you're talking about it is also important so if you're sitting there thinking about the same things in quite unhelpful ways it can maybe make the symptoms worse but I think mm. if you're talking with someone who's thoughtful who can think with you where mm. someone understands of the condition the biology the biology of it the sociological elements and psychological elements of it it can be a very useful way of actually helping someone come through something. Okay. Because the thing about depression is on a continuum. You don't either have it or you don't. Mm. There's various shades. And actually, sometimes a depression may actually be quite appropriate response to uh, experience. And it's how to help someone make sense of it and move through it. Well, I was also thinking about um, the meaning, the importance of culture and the culture rules. Mm. Mm. Uh, when we think about expressing negative, difficult emotions, and how they again regulate in uh, an impact I was thinking about depression and again a little bit about the concept of depression because it feels as if on one hand one misconception might be about the fact that it is some sort of illness and you can actually touch it uh, like a broken leg and it, or as mm. any other medical illness and on the other hand uh, there could be a misconception that actually it is something again one should not talk about and they just should ignore mm. And I'm kind of curious about your experience of how uh, people's language again changed in relationship to you know whether that was considered to be a more of a Ill, like physical illness or whether that's again culturally felt that you shouldn't be talking about the negative experiences and you are transgressing some sort of tr uh, cultural rules if you allowed yourself to open up about how you felt. Yeah, I think my, my friends weren't just weren't prepared to be the person that I was talking to about it and so that kind of made me feel a bit isolated a bit mm -hmm. um 
it, it got better. I mean, it get. I mean, as I grew up, I, I met more people with mental health problems because of the situation I was in, and so there was a there was a much more kind of. Um, they're, they're much more open to discuss kind of depression. I'd discuss theirs. Um, one of my friends is um, but, uh, one of my best friends is bipolar. Although he doesn't take it, he, he take, has no treatment for it or anything. He, he manages it himself. But I, I sort of became his unofficial counsellor for many years. He just kind of talked to me, and that was the way he's, he kind of kept off lithium and and kind of managed to keep his like day job going. He just you know talked to me for hours and hours. So. I found that as I grew up, I, I met more people with mental health problems than I did when I was a teenager, and that made it easier. And it also made me feel much more normal <laughs> rather than the um, like an exception or the kind of the odd depressed one. I mean, is it the case that depression is more common than we think because it's a response to things that happen in everyday life, such as bereavement, uh, perhaps losing a job? Um, been unwell physically for a longer period that's of time, etc. Sadness. Sadness and depression are different. Okay, so what is the difference between sadness and depression? Well, I've been on these antidepressants for um, two and a half years now, which are the best. It's the best medication I've ever been on. But I've also, in the last few months, I've experienced sadness for the first time in a long time. Mm. And sadness, I define as kind of feeling unhappy but you're not depressed you know it's not something that's gonna um, make you take to bed and kind of um, um, not go out for a week on a week or two weeks on end it, it's more of a um, oh. sorry I have to lose my train of thought again no, um, cool. it feels like you're saying it's more of a sort of emotional state that's transient it can pass yeah, it doesn't yeah. feel so intense and exactly. debilitating and I think what you're picking up on is actually how debilitating depression can be it mm. can affect people's ability to get out of bed yep. do work engage with people look after themselves whereas mm. sadness is a normal response to situations yeah. that are sad exactly okay. yeah I mean I was quite happy when I experienced sadness a couple of months ago because yeah. okay I haven't you know, normally if I feel sad, it's not sadness, I, I just get down and it's not good. But, sure. but it was just, okay, I feel a bit sad today, that's fine. <laughs> so what about symptoms of uh, major depression, such as like melancholia or antenatal and postnatal depression and psychotic depression? Is that something that people need to know about as well when they're thinking about some of the myths behind uh, what we commonly think about depression? Uh, big question <laughs> and, and that's such a complex uh, question uh, I was thinking really a little bit more before going into thinking about the challenges around those okay. complex disorders uh, you described is to start thinking also about how who creates this language who creates of, language of describing those particular phenomena that then get the label of what did you say there was a uh, Melancholia. Uh, melancholia. So this this is some sort you know there is a group of psychiatrists and specialists meeting in the states, yeah. uh, who who decide that certain experiences that people have um, are given a name mm. of of depression or all those different labels, and I think I mean this this is a little bit an ongoing issue for me even when we talk about it here what it is that depression is and who has the power to call it. 
yeah. or name it in someone because okay. it, it sounds to me that we what we mostly work with is a high, very high level of distress yeah. a person is experiencing and it impacts their functioning so much that they cannot find motivation mm. to engage in everyday um, experiences so that being with people is very difficult so that enjoying life uh, is, is, is to feeling connected to the liveliness and joys of life is really difficult and, and and I think that that's again I mean that's one of my difficulties about thinking about depression is that we, we have this label as if as if it was really describing something but mm. actually for me was important uh, as much as think when we think about the ch- uh, the challenges and the misconceptions is to really also start with the term that really we're trying to understand some sort of a condition that it sounds as if all of us mm. experience at certain time and for some of us it turns into a little bit more difficult space in life from which it's really difficult to move out without other people's mm. helping and I think that kind of uh, kind of brings me in my thinking to the thought about some of the misconceptions you mentioned about the antidepressants mm. and also about the fact that you shouldn't be talking about it yeah uh, or what, what what else was there we've um, got another one which I was trying to address yeah. a little bit which is it happens because of a sad situation so mm. the idea that everyone experiences sad thoughts or unhappiness sometimes and you may feel upset at the death of a loved one or the end of a relationship and events like these raise your risk of depression but it's not depression isn't always caused by a negative incident is it well there, there is definitely there's a number of theories that are trying to tell us what it is that makes us move into a state of mind that then is given the label of depression mm. and i think there is quite lots of people particularly in the psychodynamic world it, it is a very particular traditional way of and, and very well known way of thinking mm. about uh, mental health problems uh, thinking about relationships we have with others but in this particular group of uh, people and clinicians people would think that an onset of depression is very, very, a episode of depression Mm. is very, very often uh, triggered by a loss. But this loss doesn't have to be a concrete loss. Sometimes Mm. it could be a loss of how one thinks about themselves. Mm. Nonetheless, I mean, it is just a group of people that have those theories about this particular experience of people at certain historical time. We really don't know. uh, And is this group of people like the previous psychologists and psychotherapists in the past or...? Who, you, what do you mean by that? The group of people. Who are this group of people who are creating these labels? I, I think in in a psychodynamic theory, definitely our psychodynamic way of working. Very mm. often, uh, we think oh. that a loss, a significant loss, uh, could um, trigger an episode. Again, mm. we're moving into very theoretical way of thinking yeah. about uh, human condition mm. and suffering and distress. Mm. Um, but it's an experience, and I think that's what mm. it is. We're trying to think about how do we think about an experience that's very, very distressing. Mm. And I think sadness is quite an appropriate response and is actually quite a healthy way of expressing a loss. Mm. Yeah. Whereas depression feels much more difficult where mm. there is no way out. Yeah. People feel they can't in- continue with life mm. and they feel they have very few options and feel mm. very, very alone. Yeah. So I think these are the sorts of things we're starting to grapple with when we mm. talk about the difference between sadness and depression. Mm. And actually, sadness is quite healthy, yeah. depression mm. feels difficult. I think it's how much it impacts on someone's functioning because you can still have you know very low symptoms very low mood in one person Mm. and in another person they may experience that as depression because we all have different temperaments Mm. we all have different levels of protective factors different strengths and things like that so it becomes quite a complicated thing to think about Mm. I think that's why we like to think about what is the experience what Mm. is someone's how do they make sense of it what do they Mm. think triggered it 
yeah. once they think maintains it and then once you start to understand this yeah. then you can start to think about ways to move forward yeah. this is why talking is really good because you don't have to do it on your own yeah. you can do it with someone and I think if you're with someone who mm. understands you mm. that immediately can be such a therapeutic effect mm. and you can be in a group and feel very lonely or you mm. can be in two a couple and feel really really understood mm. I think that's a major thing when you think about the importance of talking and talking therapies um, is using the word or like episode like very helpful as well in terms of identifying that the moment in time when people have gone through this experience and perhaps the context as well so it doesn't get blurred into well these five people that we've studied before had depression so it must be something to do with our previous case histories and we can look at people as an individual I think that's important but I also think it's also important about how people think about themselves mm. if people do have a sort of mind state where they are more inclined to become sad and low mood mm. then actually that can become part of their identity mm. and it can be called like I'm you know I'm depressed I'm a depressive that's my identity mm. as opposed to to seeing it as a transient episode that mm. is in response to something that mm. someone will come through. Yeah. I think that's something about depression and low mood that you can feel like you're never going to get out of it. Yeah. And I think the idea of an episode is something that has a start and yeah. finish. It may go up and down in waves, but yeah. there are times when it would be worse and there are times it will be better. Sure. <coughs> I don't know, do you have any thoughts, Michael, about what we're talking about? Sorry. <laughs> Put you on a the spot there, Michael. Michael's a resident artist, so any of the artwork that you see on our gifts and avatars, they'll be by uh, Michael Ahan. But Michael, I I find sometimes friends ain't a, ain't always the best of people to talk to. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I've gone like that and I felt like a jump nigger. Oh, there's a lovely spot over there. Not understanding that you actually want to actually go up there and jump. Mm-hmm. They think you're being like sarcastic, being you know you're joking. Mm. You're not taking you seriously. Yeah, where where if there was a lift there, you would just go up to the top of that building and just. Mm. It's really about not having your experience understood, and actually, it can feel so awful that you don't actually feel you have another option. But there are options out there. There are services out there. Mm. You've got your GP, the NHS. You know, you've got lots of different things and different people mm. um, that you can actually get in contact with. Mm. Is it is it possible that, um, I mean, going back to Michael, your situation, is it possible that um, the friends that you had at the time didn't see depression as a real illness? Because that's another yeah. misconception and, and that people I, have. And I did sort of find hospitals weren't always the best. Hospitals? In yeah. terms of hospital staff or the hospital professionals? Sort, sort of like, I've been, I've been at Christmas and a doctor actually gave me a letter to sort of go in for a while. Okay. And I got told, sorry, mm. can you come back in about three days? Yeah. And you're thinking, but I might not be around by then. Mm-mm-mm. And I think that's when I try to overdose. Oh, wow. Mm. There's a real impact on how people respond to you when you're in that moment. Yeah. yeah. And it's about being understood, taken seriously. And a lot of it was sort of being left alone as well, because they say, a doctor will see you soon. Yeah. And they bung you in his little room and he pitch black and no one turns up. Yeah. It's very isolating and it's very, it feels traumatic actually. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Michael. I mean, have you noticed any experiences like that yourself, um, Stephen, either with um, people that you've known? Um, 
Well, the bit about the NHS, it did take me two years to see a CBT. Yeah. <laughs> to get an appointment. And so there's that big London. grey wait. There's yeah, literally yeah. a grey waiting room of yeah. like not knowing. <laughs> is it like the not knowing what's going to happen exactly, next is the problem? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it took me two years to get a CBT. And then it was only a four week kind of yeah. thing. So after that, I was kind of a little bit left isolated again. So is there kind of a, a misconception or um, expectation that that um, you've got uh, the supports network from the NHS that are waiting for you and then you find out when you look behind the curtain of the NHS that they're not as ready to deal with this uh, um, it particular seems, it seems problem? It seems to be something more recent because when I was younger, in the, in the 90s, say, when I was going for treatment in my local... Um, uh, Psychiatric hospital. Um, it was very easy to get um, to get an appointment, and it, it happened very, very quickly. And now it seems to be very slow. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm not sure if that's to do with government cuts or. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it is in council cuts, mm-hmm. but it seems much more difficult now to get help than it was in the 90s. I mean, from what I'm hearing now, uh, and this is addressing to you, uh, Roberta and Marta, it sounds like these misconceptions are perhaps not just layman's terms or at the uh, ground level, but it seems like the front line of like healthcare services may even be perpetuating some of these misconceptions because if there's this kind of long delay of helping people who are going through depression, is it that the foundation that maybe depression isn't a real illness and... Um, taking antidepressants will be seen as a, a common cure for depression. Is that, a, let's say, a philosophy or a, a commonly held idea? Um, it, it, is, it is such a good point to, to think about how the structures, the NHS structures, are actually strengthening yeah. those misconceptions, particularly the very long waiting times yeah. mm. um, that people have to you know, deal with. Uh, mm. when they feel really feeling very very low in mood mm. and often just very powerless hopeless mm. not really knowing w- how to make things better mm. and I'm, I kind of I'm aware that in, in the service we work for uh, mm. the waiting times are still six, sometimes six sometimes a year long I mean of mm. course there is a um, target in the NHS that everyone should be receiving their treatments in four months mm. Uh, but really, it is due to the uh, the fact that there is a very very high demand for the services, mm. particularly psychological services. Mm. When people, because of the, the decrease in stigma, because of the fact that the language has changed, yeah. Mm. Yeah. more and more people want to access talking therapies. Yeah. But with the increase in demand and the decrease in funding, which yeah, is sure. another point you yeah. used to even mention, we are dealing with a very very difficult situation, and it it's amazingly painful to actually. Mm realize mm. what you just said because i yeah. think i think it is it's going to have this impact mm. on people it's clearly if the s- statutory services mm. are not responding quickly to yeah. me feeling horrible so much that mm. i don't know if i'm going to be alive tomorrow yeah uh, then you start having all those thoughts i mean i'd like to kind of touch on something that you said there which is talking therapies because the nhs have a separate independent almost independent service to the kind of the walkthrough of accident and emergency because I'd assume that a lot of people, when they're feeling unwell, they're feeling uh, in a low mood or they're feeling like they need extra support, the go-to is to go to accident and emergency and hope that you can get seen in the triage service. But the way 
talking therapies work, which is a very good service by the NHS. There's a specific routine that you have to go through. It's about getting a specific contact number, being registered in a, in a specific area, and perhaps even getting assessed over the telephone. I mean, if you don't mind, is there, could you tell us a little bit about how talking therapies works for people or our listeners who are not familiar with it, particularly if you're starting to come into talking therapies for the first time? Okay, well, um, I mean, I think the first thing which is important to know about is that um, the the, the first point of contact is usually your GP and, and really usually what happens your GP will recommend that you self-refer or will help you to be referred to primary care mm. services and this is um, this, these are services which are called uh, it is the initiative that is called the increased access to uh, psychological therapies yeah. IAPT yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so probably quite a lot of people might be familiar with yeah. it so this is in a way the first point of contact and they um, they offer briefer interventions and lower intensity interventions yeah. and yet this is true the first point the first assessment might require people to talk over the phone about their difficulties mm-hmm. and then it, they, I think it depends a little bit on the location in different London mm. locations there is a different range of therapies yeah. that is being offered mm. uh, I think there is a dominance of CBT of cognitive behavior therapy overall mm. uh, but in some places you can access different forms of treatment or mm. of, of help I know this is a very difficult question I know he's in the flow but how would cognitive behavior therapy differ from let's say clinical psychology mm-hmm. or okay. as a treatment as an initial treatment anyway so 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 now we're going into I'm kind of thinking maybe might that might be helpful to we need a part two for a promise and, 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 okay. talk. And, and actually maybe we could have really a, a talk with Roberta and other people I mean that just could be about the idea that. for a podcast I think that okay. might be very helpful for Malachi people. make a note of that we need a podcast on the differences between CBT and uh, clinical psychology and but, other therapies yeah, really. therapies. Uh, but, but going back going to, back to point, talking therapies particularly for people who might be interested how to access services yeah. so this is the pe- first point of contact mm. uh, the, the primary care would perhaps be taking people whose difficulties are described as perhaps not long-standing yeah. and perhaps not as complex I mean all of it we're dealing with language here uh, yeah. so, so, so um, I mean again um, it might be helpful if people wanted to have another podcast just on that. And we would, yeah, okay. ha- would be very happy to explain what this language means. But really what it means that if someone if someone has had problems for, let's say, t- uh, a number of years mm. and they have suffered with difficulties that were uh, diagnosed yeah. or were given a diagnosis of, let's say, depression and bipolar. And, and, and for instance, sometimes they feel so low in mood that they think about engaging in actions or behaviors mm. that could cause harm to themselves perhaps the primary care would not consider that they are able to offer hmm. appropriate treatments they would think okay. that they they not in the best pla- not the best position to support people with difficulties that are described by those labels hmm. uh, and this is when it is I'm speaking now about new arm this is when a person if they want to continue if they want to access talking therapy they might be referred to hmm. services we call secondary yeah. care services and there is a number of ways of doing it it could happen from primary care to secondary care mm. sometimes people might be able to speak about this referral already with their GP but they have to at least be registered to their GP to get access yes. you don't necessarily have to be di- previously diagnosed with a mental health condition mm. no no you don't need to the diagnosis I mean the diagnosis I mean of course is used as a language it is more kind of to share mm. uh, okay. people's um, 
expression of distress, so okay. to speak. Uh, but the GP is it, you need to be you need to be registered with, with a GP within a certain uh, location in order to access services there. Uh, the waiting times are long. Mm. The system is very clunky, mm. um, and uh, but that that's one way of doing it. A and E mm. going through their crisis teams. Yeah, it's another way of doing it. Okay. Well, thank you for exploring that at length with a great answer there, Marta. Really appreciate that. Unfortunately, we're a bit tight for time, so we're going to have to wrap up in just a moment. But um, before we close uh, on this uh, uh, session, uh, please note that there is information about uh, Newham Talking Therapies, which is available online if you're listening and if you'd like to follow that up you can either check the website of www.nhschoices.co.uk or www.newhamtalkingtherapies.nhs.uk one thing i wanted to um, ask is um, i mean what would be your recommendation for people who were feeling out who out there maybe listeners who are feeling depressed and not sure where to go or where to look to and they feel that they're stuck with these mm -hmm. misconceptions what do you think the next step would be for them i think the gp visit yeah. your local gp because i think people can go online they yeah. can get information they can access forums but there are misconceptions out there there's sorts of um, things that are very helpful and mm. things that are less helpful and it's probably good to speak to a trained professional in the first instance and the gp would be a good point of call okay um, well thank you for that um, welcome advice and uh, taking part in our first podcast which we hope is uh, one of many with you in future um, so today you've been listening to Dr. Roberta Babb uh, Michael Ahern um, bye <laughs> uh, I hope I get this one right Dr. Marta Sonoskowska Sonoska, yes was that close? That was very close. Okay. Um, and uh, Stephen Code. Um, you've been listening to Enough Said. I've been your host, uh, Trevor Jones. And if you'd like to know more about our podcast and where you can find information about Enough, you can feel free to look at our website, www.inuf.org. That's www.inuf.org. Or you can follow us on Twitter via at inuf underscore t-h-e-c-h-a-r-i-t-y that's at enough the charity thank you very much uh, don't forget to subscribe over and out